the bad ideas related to fables and genealogies and the misunderstanding of the law about how the law wasn't made for righteous people, but unrighteous people. Now then, we consider how the glorious gospel in verse 11 stands in contrast to other beliefs. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's the power of the gospel. The preaching of the cross is the power of God unto salvation. The shedding of the blood produces remission of sins. The telling of that story produces in people a desire to understand the mercy of God. God did not have to send his only begotten son, but he did. And having committed that gospel to Paul, he says in verse 12 that he's grateful. So we all should be grateful. Now his ministry was that of apostleship, but all of us have a ministry. If you'll quickly turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I want you to see a verse of scripture, verse 28, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Every Christian is not called to a pulpit ministry. And every Christian may not necessarily exhibit some aspects of a supernatural life. But in verse 28 here, of all the ministries in the church today that were formed in the ministry and established in the foundation of the church, the helps ministry is the largest of all the ministries. The one that cleans the church, helps ministry. The one that picks people up and bring them to church, that's a helps ministry. If you're the kind of per person that witnesses and tells people about your faith in God and about your fellowship and about knowing the Lord. It's a helps ministry. The person that counts the money helps ministry. All of these things. So of all the different ministries, you have millions of people, if not billions of people, that have participated in the helps ministry in the history of the church. So coming back to 1 Timothy 1 verse 12, Every single one of you should be grateful to the Lord that you've been called to help the kingdom of God. Now, what kind of help you provide, that's up to you. Women's ministry, men's ministry, children's ministry, some kind of outdoor outreach, uh, secretarial stuff, anything that helps a fellowship be a better fellowship that's called a helps ministry. And, and typically, if, if you see an area that's lacking where there's work that can be done and you have the ability to do it, that's where help begins. See? So if you, if, if you park your car and then you're coming inside and then you look out there on the ground and, and there's a, a beer can, that, that's not the time to stop and just say, I can't believe people so disrespectful that they leave a beer can out here in, in the uh, parking lot and then you just walk on past and come on in here. No, the, the, the helping part would be to reach down and pick it up and put it in the trash without worrying about people thinking you're the one that drank everything in it. 
Okay? Helps ministry. So Paul says in verse 12 then, he's thankful to Christ Jesus who enabled him. So the Lord gives us the ability to do whatever it is he wants us to do. That's what happened here. He enabled him. And you can see he counted him faithful, putting him in the ministry. Now here, here's the question there. Why and when did the Lord count this man faithful? This long list of things in verse 13 tells us that he was a pretty bad guy, but the Lord saw past his sins to see what he could become and what he would become. With the enabling power of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, a person's life can change. And where all we might see about somebody is bad stuff and negative stuff and worthlessness. With the help of God, they'll become fruitful in the kingdom of God. So sometimes you, you've got to be able to look at that, <clears throat> that person who's a drug addict or an alcoholic or a self-righteous teacher or somebody who is uh, involved with a legal field, medical field, but don't think they need God, an atheist farmer, whoever it might be. You have to be able to look past or beyond their flaws and defects in their character to see them as somebody that can stand at a door and greet people saying, welcome to the house of God. We're glad to have you here. Because he did that. He saw in Paul apostleship before Paul ever accepted Jesus as a savior. And so the Lord looks at us and I'm telling you, he saw things in us before we ever saw those same things in us. It says here, he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now the early church, knowing how Saul acted towards the church, he probably would have been the last person they would have wanted to preach to them. I mean, remember what Saul did? Put people in jail? Was happy when Stephen was stoned? Was, was, was glad to see people lose their lives? Most people don't want somebody like that preaching at them. But if you look later in verse uh, number 16, Paul says there that the Lord was setting forth in him a pattern. So he was saying, my life is, has essentially become a metaphor to show you that if he could save me, he can save anybody. Does that make sense? Yeah, so however bad you think a person is, where sin does abound, grace does much more what? Abound. So wherever we see a lot of sin, we should also see the possibility for great revival. Yeah, great revival, great change and transformation. Verse 13, a blasphemer. Now, Paul was a Pharisee, so you would never really think of him as a blasphemer because he knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But why was he a blasphemer? Because he rejected the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. That's why. He was a blasphemer because he stretched forth his hands to touch the body of Christ. And that's why Jesus said to him, why are you bothering me? And Paul is like, well, who are you? I never knew I was bothering you. Well, if you're touching my body, the church, then you're touching me. And with his mouth, he was telling people, Jesus is not the son of God. He did not die on the cross bearing your sins. All of those things were blasphemous. Well, in, in uh, the next statement here, it says he's a persecutor. That's exactly what he was. It says in the book of Acts, in uh, the first few verses of chapter eight, and then a few things in chapter nine, 
that he was a gentleman who railed against Christians. See, with his speech, with his conduct. When it says he was injurious, the Greek word there has to do with being violently prideful. So here was a man that couldn't handle opposition to his beliefs to the point that he would physically attack them. That's what he did. And if you've seen people like that, then you know it, it's true. Um, Hindu people can be this way. You hear stories all the time about how they attack Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, and others. Muslims certainly can be this way. You hear story after story of persecution of Christians, honor killings, and so on and so forth. And if you're not careful, people who use the name of Jesus will also become like this. Self-righteous, prideful, blowing up uh, abortion clinics, and physically harming people. That is not the plan of God for people like you and me. And Paul said, this is where I was. This is what I did. This is how I thought and how I lived. But notice he says in verse 13, I obtained mercy. See, the compassion of God. How many times did people come up to Jesus in the Gospels and use these words? Lord, be merciful unto me. Lord, have mercy on me. Well, that's what we receive. Mercy is something that is extended from God to people who don't necessarily deserve it. A leper, see, a blind man. And when, when we obtained mercy, we did because like Paul, we came to understand the depths of the riches of the goodness of God and his mercy. And you can see in that final sentence there, he tells you why he was a blasphemer and persecutor and injurious, because he did it ignorantly in unbelief. Again, Paul didn't think he was in unbelief. He thought he was a believer. He believed he was doing correctly in the eyes of God. So this shows us that a person can embrace a teaching and not even know that that teaching is actually fighting against the Lord. And they'll believe that they're right when in fact they're wrong. Yeah, back in medieval times, you ever read the stories of the Crusaders and how they went from Europe, fought their way to Palestine because they wanted to recapture uh, Jerusalem from the Muslims and how these mercenary like men, because they certainly weren't born again, but they had been sworn in by whoever, the Pope, Cardinals, or whoever did that, and, and told these gentlemen to go, and their sins would be forgiven somewhat. And you can read the stories in history of how they went from one village to the next, robbing, pillaging, burning, raping, killing, all the way across Europe and Asia to fight the Muslims. That, that's not the plan of God. But... Anybody who was involved with that, if they genuinely came to faith in Jesus and came to know him, they can be saved too. Yeah. Because they willingly did it in, in ignorance and, and in unbelief. I, I honestly believe that if, if Muhammad could have come to know the king and been born again, 
Can you imagine the energy and zeal that he would have put towards the kingdom of God? The whole Middle East would look a whole lot different than it looks right now. But he didn't come to know God. Because when he was running around looking for somebody to explain God to him, he couldn't find a whole lot of people. The Jewish people were too exclusive. They were just saying, that, look, if you're not one of us, you can't get in. You've got to be born into this. And then the, the Christians of his day that were around him, they were too inclusive. They had every kind of God you can think of that they worshiped and saints that they prayed to and all of that. And, and here he goes out in the cave and does all that he does and ends up with a false vision from a false angel that comes and misleads him. But you've got a, a, a sixth century Cornelius looking for a man of God to tell him about the kingdom, but there was no Peter to send to him. It's sad. It's really sad. So verse, verse 14, Paul says, the grace of God was abundant. Now by grace, we're talking about divine favor, we're talking about this enablement because 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So verse 12 again, I thank Christ Jesus who hath enabled me. How did he enable him? By the grace of God. Grace is what enables you to become a different person, to live the Christian life. And then he talks about faith and love. So the, the whole idea here being you've got to have these three characteristics in walking with the Lord. You certainly have to have trust in God because if you don't have trust in God, you won't have, you, you won't have any kind of grace at work in your life. For by grace, we are saved through what? Faith. So then faith becomes the means. If I have the means, then I've got the umbilical cord. God can supply the grace for me to do everything else. And here it says also about love because Romans tells us that the love of God was shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Spirit. The day you became a Christian, not the next day, not a year later, the day you became a Christian, God put in your heart his love. So now you have the capacity to walk in love. Now you, you may not have the desire. You may, you may want to be a grudge bearer, be mad at somebody for another day and a half before you actually forgive somebody. But once you become a Christian, there should be in you this new life, this new fruit, because the new seed has been planted. And now that I'm a Christian, love covers a multitude of sins. And if you've done a whole lot of things wrong to me and said a lot of things that hurt me, I've got to be willing now to forgive you. Yeah, that's what Paul is saying. And if you don't believe me, think of, think of how the early church treated Paul after he became a Christian and he tried to join in. They said, well, Oh, I think you're going to need a spokesman. And so he had to get Barnabas. And Barnabas had to come along and say, look, he really has had a life-changing experience with God. And even then, with Barnabas advocating on his behalf, the scripture says the disciples were afraid of him. Well, wouldn't you? He's saved now. He's sitting in church service with us now. He's lifting his hand saying that he loves the Lord. But all the people that he put in jail are still in jail. And all the people that he killed, some of the relatives of the people he's worshiping with, are still in the grave. But he wants to just start all over, and we got to just act like because God has forgiven him, we're going to forgive him. 
That's the gospel. See, that's the gospel. And it's, it, it's not easy when the people who, who have hurt you the most are now standing shoulder to shoulder with you and you've got to lift your hands and praise God. So the people who, who sometimes lose a loved one in a big city to some kind of a shooting or, or, or some kind of robbery or something like that, and, and they say uh, things like, well, you know, there's not, a, there's not a place in hell deep enough for him or her. And that kind of language and all of that. If that person finds forgiveness, they still get to go be with the king, despite the hostility of other people towards them. And this is why when Paul says, I obtained mercy, he's making sure that we know he got this from God and not from man. Because if you have to wait for people to give you mercy and compassion, you may be waiting a long time. Yeah. All of us in here have crossed people before who probably still are holding on to that and won't let it go. See? But you don't have to be that way. Nope. So verse, verse, uh, verse 15, then, he talks about this faithful saying and one that we should accept. Christ came into the world to save what? Sinners. Now, I made a lady mad one time when we were talking about this, and she's a, she's a feverish animal lover. And I said, I said to her, Jesus did not come into this world to save your dog. Oh, I thought she was going to hurt me. Unless, unless you believe your dog is a sinner. Okay? But, but, but notice, notice here, to save sinners. Now, as far as I know, those are people. So the world of redemption has to do with humans. Those who have sinned in the similitude of Adam who have come into this world born in sin, shaped in iniquity. Those are the ones that Jesus came to redeem. So we, we understand that when Paul says salvation is of the sinner, he says he's chief because of what he has done in verse 13. And we're going to count sins. Paul is saying you, nobody in here has done as much as I've done. And if we want to deal with the, the problem of the present past, how did your past continually haunt you, if we can use that, that language to say it's always there, always before your, 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 your face or your mind, he's saying there's nobody in here or reading this epistle that has done more bad stuff than me. That's what he's saying. He came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. I don't know what other sins Paul might have done, but if he thinks he's at the top, he obviously understands that he's, he's thought some pretty bad things and done some pretty bad things. And if, um, if, if Jesus came to save sinners, then this leads to the idea that we need to be able to convince people with the help of the gospel that they're lost so that they can be saved. You, you do realize that if you, if you change the language you use in trying to reach people and you make it too positive, then they won't really see a reason to need to change. You understand that? So presently, you, you can't say, of course, with our justice system and department here in Nebraska, you, you can't, they don't talk about the juvenile uh, 
system or juvenile delinquency system anymore. They now use the word youth, which I don't understand the difference, still a synonym, okay? Might as well say juvenile. They no longer in the prison system can call folks inmates, so now we gotta call them incarcerated. Well, you're still in jail, okay? But the whole idea is to use language and terminology that will cause people to feel better about themselves. You've probably seen that commercial where that gentleman is sitting there on uh, <clears throat> television and he's a, as a black guy and you can tell he's had a pretty difficult life and his mouth is kind of wrinkled going up in a different direction. And he said, I may have done some bad things and committed some crimes in my life, but I'm not a criminal. <laughs> oh, yes, you are. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. You, you are a criminal. You, that's like someone saying, well, I may, I may have murdered a few people in my life, but I'm not a murderer. Oh, yes, you are. Yeah. I may have committed some sins in my life, but I'm not a sinner. Oh, yes, you are if you haven't changed your life, you see. And, and this is what Paul is helping us see here in verse 15. You cannot get a person saved until you first help that person to see that they're lost. If, if I honestly believe that I'm not separated from God, then why do I need your salvation? And if you say to me that, that God's not angry with me in my sin and that God will accept me just as I am without any kind of change, then why am I labeled a sinner and why do I need salvation? I'm just as good as you. And for many people, if you listen carefully to how they present the gospel, all they're telling people is come to Jesus Add him to whoever you are and whatever you are, and you'll be fine. And that's not what this is. The gospel says each of us have to die so that he can live through us. And if we don't die to our self-will, die to our desires, then he can never live in us, and this body will never be the temple of the Holy Spirit like it's supposed to be. He came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. Notice verse 16. For this cause I obtained mercy, because Jesus came into this world, that in me first, see, first of all, he might show all long-suffering. How did he show long-suffering unto Saul or Paul? He put up with all of his shenanigans. Now you say, well, pastor, I just don't think that's right for God to let Paul do everything he did, putting all these innocent people in jail because of their faith and so on and so forth. I, it just seems to me that's wrong. Well, of course you're going to think like that. But, but the long suffering of God is that he, in his great mercy and his compassion, he doesn't want us to live in sin, but he's not going to come down here and live through you and make you a puppet. We have free will. We are free moral agents. You can choose to do right or you can choose to do wrong, but God is not going to come down here and compel you to do anything. But the good thing about his long suffering is that he does wait patiently and put up with a lot of stuff. I've thought of this every time I've had somebody in a church service give their hearts to the Lord when they're in their 60s or 70s or 80s. Or 90s. Don't tell me God's not long-suffering. I've seen people come to the Lord in their 90s. 
That's a lot of sin that's traveled up under that bridge in that river, you see. A lot of sin. But, but God, he, he showed a measure of compassion towards them. He said, well, other people, they, they didn't do anything wrong and they died early or, or this and that happened. Well, when you get to heaven, you can ask God all about that. But I know that when it came to Paul, the Lord was long suffering toward him to present in him a pattern that if he can save Paul with all the bad things that he's done, then Randy looks at this gospel when he hears it and he says, oh my goodness, there's hope for me. Yeah, yeah, there's hope for me. With everything that Paul did, then there's hope for somebody out here in rural Nebraska that you haven't done anything in your life that's so bad that the grace of God can reach down and grab you and that the blood of Jesus Christ can wash you and cleanse you up. Now, you might try to convince yourself that uh, God wouldn't want me and I've done too many bad things, but you've got to come back to the pattern. Come back to the pattern. Th this man here, he, he did some, some, some bad things. <clears throat> so we could tell you stories of people who murdered a lot of folks, but came to faith. I know a story of one church where I go where in the men's Bible study, there was a gentleman that uh, had come to the uh, Bible study on, I think it was one of the morning men's Bible studies, and he came for several months, just enjoyed it all, and just had a good time you know, clicking with the men and bonding with the men, hearing the stories of how God saved them and all of that. And then they went months and never saw him and couldn't understand what happened to him until one day somebody was checking around and happened to be looking at the news one night and they saw where this serial killer, one of the worst in California's history, had been arrested and was in jail now, and then they showed his picture. And when they showed his picture, my pastor friend looked at him and said, oh my goodness, that was the man that was in our, in our men's Bible study for those months. Well, what happened was he, he, he came to the end of his rope. He couldn't deal with the guilt and shame of everything that he did. He just found a little church in a small town of about 900 people, started going, got in there, found some guys that he liked, became a Christian. The conviction in his heart was so great because of what he'd done, so he just walked in of his own accord into the police station and turned himself in. And you know that man found Christ, salvation, and uh, that means that he's got a heavenly home even though the family members of the people that he killed don't believe he deserves the grace of God. When they had the trial and the family members were showing up, they didn't want to hear anything about any Jesus. They didn't want to hear nothing about any gospel. And they certainly didn't want to believe this man actually had been accepted by God as a Christian now. Do you understand what, this, what I'm saying? See, the pattern, the pattern in Paul is that just because you don't like him or like forgiveness for him, that doesn't mean he can't have it. I've told you before, Everybody believes in forgiveness, especially when they're the ones that want it. Yeah, if you're the one that want it, you believe in forgiveness. So verse, verse uh, 17 then tells us about God and his characteristics. We have all of these, 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 uh, these titles here. He's eternal. That means he's unending. 
He's immortal. That means he's not a man that can die. He's invisible. He can't be seen with the natural eye. The only wise guy, everybody in comparison to him is ignorant. There is no other God. And any fake God they come up with is not a wise God. So to him, there's honor and glory. Now what is honor? That has to do with respect and how we value people. Now, I honestly believe our, our nation would be the better right now if we taught young people how to honor the elderly. Now, this goes back to the Ten Commandments. Um, you know, love your mom and your pops, and it'll be well with you. If, if I honor my mom and dad, I'm likely going to honor other people's mom and dad. And I'm going to honor other people that are older. But the lack of honor is demonstrated in our nation today by the way people sit together in bleachers and you'll watch young people just cuss around their grandparents and other people's grandparents. Be disrespectful to them. Lack of honor. You, you can see it when here's a, a, a person who barely is, is able to walk and they got a handicap sticker on their uh, car there and they try to pull into one of those little spots and some, some uh, middle-aged person doesn't have anything wrong with them at all, slips in there real fast because they're only going to be in the store about 10 minutes. So they take the handicap spot and just totally disrespectful, no honor, you see, that kind of a thing. And, and we see it in relationships with the way we talk about one another. So our culture today says you shouldn't use any language that is demeaning. And so uh, if, you're, if you're a guy that likes guys, you can't use the word F-A-G because that's bad. And, and if you're black, then you don't want to hear N-I-G-G-A because that's bad. And then if you're white, you don't want to be called C-R-A-C-K-E-R, because that's bad. And if you're Hispanic, you don't want somebody to spell out or say S-P-I-C, because that's bad. And then if you're of Asian background, you don't want to hear G-O-O-K, because that's bad. So the, these terms that, that have come about because of all kinds of stereotypes and cultural things and and all of that, have for the most part been excised from most people's vocabulary. However, there are programs on television, you can see them on commercials sometimes, and you can watch one person after another calling a lady a female dog. And people don't see anything wrong with that. Or other expletives that are used. Because Hollywood believes it's offensive if we don't like it, but if we deem it okay to use that language, then it should be used. Well, we as Christians, we should condemn it all. And it doesn't matter what comes out of Hollywood or out of the theater or out of the arts. We don't live our lives on the basis of that. We are to be people of honor and integrity. I'm going to esteem you because you're the creation of God. Now, I may not condone your behavior, and I'll likely tell you your behavior is, is sinful and wrong, Sometimes the Bible says abominable, perverse. But if you're hungry, I'm going to feed you. If you're naked, I'm going to clothe you. If you need a ride, I'm probably going to give you a lift. See, See honor, that's, that's something 
that is uh, necessary in society. It's something that's drilled into all military personnel. If you got your uniform on, you will act like a person of honor. You respect the uniform. You respect other people. Well, as a Christian, we have our uniform on all the time, so do good unto all men, but especially to those of the household of what? Faith. See, see, that's how we should be. Look at, look at verse 18 here. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on you that you by them might war good warfare. Now go quickly to chapter four and look at verse 14. You can see a connective passage with this. Verse 14, chapter four, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on the hands of the presbytery. So obviously with Timothy, there were elders, not novices, but seasoned individuals in the church who A, laid hands on him and B, prophesied to him about his ministry. And Paul is saying to Timothy, you hold on to what these people said to you because here in Ephesus where you've got to fight this paganism and this secularism, you're going to need every word from God that you've received. And you make sure that you use these things to hold on to your faith. How do I know that's what he's talking about? Remember, Timothy didn't have this. He didn't have a book like this. He didn't have a Bible. He didn't have anything that had been published and bound together. If he had some scrolls of the Old Testament scripture, praise the Lord. But what he did have was some people around him that knew God, knew the word of the Lord, and they laying hands on him and speaking the word of God into his life, he was able to fight the good fight of faith. See, that's war, good warfare. Fight the good fight of faith. Timothy, you were called to be here. Now, I don't know what they prophesied to him and told him, but I can tell you if Paul is taking the time to write this epistle to him, then what they told him had to have been scriptural and in line with everything that Paul believed and had to be powerful enough for this man to have a memory of it. See, there's some things people say to you in the word of the Lord that you never forget. I know that's happened to me. And I've certainly been on the side of delivering the word of the Lord to people like that. And, and they hold on to it. So prophecy then is a very powerful tool in setting a person into their membership ministry particularly Timothy right here. It's a very powerful tool. Because he told him the war good warfare, notice verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. Uh, so you've got to embrace faith, Timothy, and not let it go. And we want you to have a good conscience. We ran into that earlier in chapter 1 where we were looking at that in verse 5 with a good conscience. And we spent a good amount of time talking about that then. I don't want to go all over conscience again, but I will show you here in verse 19, which some having put away concerning the faith have made shipwreck. So he's saying there have been people who have embraced the faith and had a good conscience, but they don't have it today. Now, this is what we call backsliding because there are a lot of people don't believe in backsliding. If you talk to some Presbyterians, or Reformed Baptists, their doctrine of perseverance is so strong that they don't believe it's possible for a person to come to a knowledge of God and then stray away. 
But all you got to do is read Hebrews 6, see? And then look at Judas. Last time I checked, he was a man that was part of the 12, Matthew 10, received power to heal the sick and cast out devils, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. That's Matthew 10. And he went out and did all of these things and like the 70, had their names written down in heaven and were rejoicing because of the power they had. But in the process of all of this stuff, Judas start turning, going in a different direction. And it was so subtle that when he was sitting there with them in the Gospel of John, the Bible says the Lord said to Judas, what you do, go and do quickly. And the disciples looked at him and thought they were just sending him to the market. That man backslid in the middle of the revival and the disciples didn't even know he had backslid. So I'm telling you, it's possible to be in church every time the doors open and still be falling away from God and other people can't tell. He can tell. But God, God knows what's going on. But I, I've, I've seen a number of people slide away from God and I'm like, oh my goodness, when did that happen? Then you start looking at their life, then you can start seeing where some things were taking place. So he says to him, you hold faith because some have put away concern and faith and made shipwreck. Now that means if you lose your faith and you lose a good conscience, you are going to shipwreck. Yeah. Now how, how, do, how do people shipwreck them? They start listening to things that produce unbelief in their life. Remember the last chapter of 1 uh, Timothy, Timothy, when we, we read the verse that talks about staying away from vain babblings and uh, science falsely so-called? If you're not careful, you'll listen to, to things, and before you know it, it, it'll start making sense to you. I mean, they'll have that Harvard professor on the National Geographic channel where they bring them on Fox News or on CNN and it'll be somebody from Yale and then they're going to explain to you exactly what the Bible means about this particular verse. Now, you can read it in English. You've got better than third grade education. You know exactly what the text says, but by the time they're done with it, you're like, oh my goodness, I just never knew all that was packed in there because it's not in there. They put it in there. And by the time they finish mesmerizing you by quoting a Greek word here and a Hebrew word there and telling you about some professor here, there, and yonder, and they, they, they've, they've captivated you and you're wondering now, well, I wonder if Jesus really was raised from the dead. Yeah, that's how it starts. Right, scholars. See, th this whole thing is subtle. So he says to them, he says, concerning the faith, they've made shipwreck. Now, we can say plane wreck. We can say train wreck. Okay. <laughs> we can say car wreck, any kind of wreck you want. I just know that when a ship is out there on the ocean, if it loses its sails, it's just going to be driven in every different direction by the ways of the sea. If it has its sails but doesn't have a pilot or a captain, it'll be driven by the winds of the day, but eventually it's gonna hit some rocks or a mountain and everything's gonna fall apart and people gonna lose their faith. And then Paul didn't wanna leave it there, so he gave us an example. He said, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've delivered unto Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme, that they may learn not to do what I once did, okay? 
Because he said in verse, that earlier verse there, in verse uh, 13, Paul said he was a blasphemer. So he said he delivered these folks over to Satan so that they would learn. Now what in the world does this mean? And how can you deliver somebody over to the devil? Because I don't think Paul would have put it in there if it wasn't possible. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now here are some thoughts maybe you've never even considered. 1 Corinthians 5, look at verse 1. It's reported commonly that there's fornication among you and the kind of fornication that shouldn't be named among Gentiles that somebody should have his father's wife. As Jennifer says, yuck three times. Okay? Yeah. So verse 2, and all of you are puffed up. That means just proud of this. And you haven't mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you for verily as absent in the body. That means not with you physically, but present in spirit. I've judged. See, I've judged. See, people say all the time, don't judge. <laughs> okay. Paul said he that is spiritual judges all things. I've judged already as though I were present concerning him that did this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you gather together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto who? Satan, for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit might be saved or may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So he said, you, th there are some people you've got to cut the kite strings with and let them go. And let them go. And... And hopefully, in the end, somebody will come back to God and have a relationship with God and their spirit and soul still make it to heaven. Physically, they're going to have some challenges. Now, how, how is this going to happen? Well, verse 6, he tells them, your boasting isn't good. Verse 7, he says, purge out the old leaven that you can be a new lump. Now, most churches don't, don't like this whole aspect here because if you've got to purge something, you've got to look at something and declare this isn't right, and then you've got to get rid of it. And the average Christian doesn't want to be involved with having to ask people to leave. Who wants to do that? It's certainly hard to do that in a church with thousands and thousands of people, but I can tell you right now, if you don't do it, then that stuff, just like yeast and bread, spreads quickly. You know, spreads quickly. I, I've had people who were of a same gender attraction come to church before. And in one of the other churches, they had heard me on, on radio. So they heard me preach a message on love. So they, they thought I was an, an inclusive language preacher. So they, they came and enjoyed the service that, that time. Then they came again and enjoyed the service. And then finally, after about the third time they were there, somebody in church said to me, well, pastor, do you know who that is? I said, well, no, I don't know who it is at all. They said, well, that's so-and-so, and he's uh, gay, and he lives with a man in, uh, in town. I said, really? I said, okay. And so this went on doing some services, but then it came time for communion. And, and he wanted to do communion. So I told the, the deacons before the service, I said, now, when we're passing out communion this morning, 
I said, do you think we ought to bypass the man that is living with another man in a physical relationship? They said, of course. I said, well, you know this won't look good in front of everybody if you do that. They said, we understand. And so sure enough, they passed out the community stuff. I stood there just kind of watched. They just bypassed him all the way around, gave it to everybody else. And then, of course, afterwards, he was somewhat embarrassed and ashamed. And uh, when I talked with him outside the church, he decided he wasn't going to come back again. Okay? Now, let's keep reading now. Let's come down here. Verse 8. So keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9. I wrote unto you an epistle not to company with fornicators. See, not the fellowship, spend a whole lot of time with them. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, for then you must needs go out of the world. He said, look, you can't avoid, avoid people in sin. As long as you're breathing on planet Earth, you're going to be around people who don't know God, and you're going to have to have relationship with them because you can't reach them unless you have contact with them. However, verse 11, but I have written now unto you not to keep company if a man, we'll say woman also, that is called a brother, we'll say sister. So this is a self-professing Christian. Be a fornicator, covetous, idolater, railer, drunkard, extortioner. Would such a one know not what? Eat. Don't you have a meal with them? See? Now I could take you to another verse where Paul deals with this also. He said that the person might experience shame. The whole point of all of this is the person who is actively walking in adultery or idolatry the church should be able to say to them, that is not the kind of lifestyle we're going to put up with because it's public and it's visible. Now, everybody has something in their life that God's probably dealing with, okay? But we're talking about visible and noticeable sins. So one time when I had a man who, he, was, uh, he left his wife to go live with another woman. And then his Wife is there in our, in our church. Um, she asked me if I go talk with them. I said, sure, I don't, I don't mind. So I did, and I went in, knocked on the door, sat down in his office, and he said, I knew you were coming. I said, well, I'm glad you knew I was coming. So I sat down, started talking to him about what the Bible says. He was an elder in another church, you know, but his wife started coming to our church because she knew what we believed and, and things like that. And their other pastor wouldn't get involved and try to help this situation. So I, I told him, I shared with him the gospel and he just basically told me, I have a right to be happy and I'm just not happy with my wife anymore. That's what he told me. <clears throat> so I went to the local ministers meeting and we're sitting there and this had come up and uh, I think he and his lover were trying to show up at other churches in that region wanting to do worship and stuff because he was still claiming he was a Christian and she was claiming she was a Christian and, and they were trying to figure out how they were going to handle this and, and, and I just sat there and listened for a little while and I said, look, this is a no-brainer. This man is married and he's living with a woman that's not his wife. She, he, neither he nor she should be welcome in any of our fellowships. 
and it sets a bad standard and it puts a model in front of our children that could wreck their lives. And they said, well, you know, I mean, these are small towns. How, how are we going to get around this? I said, that's right. These are small towns. How can you not get around this? You got to handle this or the people are not going to respect the folks in the church, you see. And so that's how we handled it. And this is, what, this is the kind of thing Paul is talking about at the end of 1 Timothy 1 when he's saying deliver such one over to Satan. If you're going to be so self-willed and stubborn that you're going to do your own thing regardless of what the Bible says and other disciples say to you that are trying to help you, then, then you need to be here on the outside trying to figure out how you can get back into fellowship. But unfortunately, even though I'm telling you this, for every one church that would apply what I just told you, there are probably a hundred churches that would say to them, we welcome you with open arms and embrace you, and we just believe we can come in and help you. See? Yeah. See? That's the, that's the sad thing. Okay, let's pray. Father, your word is true, and you really did show mercy and compassion toward Paul in the middle of everything he went through in coming to faith in Jesus. And I pray, God, you'd help all of us live lives that, that are clean and, and God help us to be forgiving and help us to love one another, but to never approve of anything that's sinful. And God, I pray that you would use us to reach people for the gospel, for the kingdom. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, amen, 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 amen.